This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In today's episode, we're going to hear from Tab and Brad, both with retirement planning questions, one with a client who is quite far out from retirement and one where retirement is just around the corner. This episode will be good for continuing education credits. For those in Alberta, we'll have one life and half an accident and sickness credit. On the financial planning side, we'll be approved for an FP Canada credit. Uh, It should be good in all other jurisdictions, and we'll also submit it for an IROC credit. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. Okay, we're back to the original format for the podcast here with two interviews, both a little bit shorter, both around a specific problem. In the first interview, we're going to hear from Tab, and Tab talks through helping a client with a retirement question or with a retirement planning question around a defined benefit pension. We'll talk about defined benefit pension buybacks and how they work and why the math tab did worked out the way it did following the interview. So you'll get to hear a little bit of how that math works. Uh, It does require a little bit of investigation usually to make that math work. So you'll hear Tab say that he put in uh, some time on this and really wasn't sure if that was going to yield any sort of return for him. I always find that interesting. It's something that I know Michael Kitsis, for example, talks about a fair bit, where he talks about how much work we should put in for a client before we know that that person is going to become a client or or some version of that. But I think that it's worth contemplating. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting here, Tab talks about this client coming from a referral And I think sometimes when it's from a referral, maybe we're willing to put in a little bit more work on spec, if you want to look at it that way, vice knowing that there's going to be some work waiting for us when we're all said and done. The second interview is going to be with Brad. And Brad is going to take us through a problem that I actually probably get this question about once a quarter or so. And when Brad emailed me with this question. I thought, you know, this is actually a really good opportunity to put this in the uh, podcast. And the question here is about the transition from CPP retirement to CPP disability benefits. And we'll talk about that as well as a couple of other retirement planning issues. This is a pretty interesting retirement planning scenario that Brad is dealing with here. And I quite enjoyed this discussion as well. All right, let's hear from Tab. Okay, we have Tab joining us today. Tab is in rural Alberta, financial planner and licensed on both the insurance and MFDA side. That's it, Tab, right? Correct. And how long you been in the business for? Nine years on January 1st. All right, so Tab and I have been going back and forth a little bit with a question about a client with a defined benefit pension. I always like these questions. DB pensions are such a treasure trove of financial planning opportunities, aren't they? hundred percent. Yeah. And, and not as common anymore, of course. No, that's right. It makes it a place where I do get a lot of questions. So the client you're dealing with here, how long have you been dealing with this particular client? Um, first meeting was in August, August 16th. And, and, um, 
several meetings between uh, then and now, mostly information, mostly collecting information, a uh, lot of discussion, asking a lot of questions, trying to understand what she was looking for from us yeah. and, uh, and trying to understand where, where she wanted to go and what, what she was trying to accomplish. So several, several meetings. Uh, the last one was in uh, end of October. Now, now we've done some paperwork and, and things are pro- progressing now at this point. But. Yeah, perfect. And just by way of reference, we're sort of the end of December when we're recording this, just so you people bet. can trace that. You say several meetings. Can you give an approximate breakdown of how much time you would have spent actually in meeting with this client? Yeah, I would say three and a half hours of face-to-face time. Okay. And then administrative work on top of that? So between myself and my admin assistant, probably another, well, on the planning side, a couple hours and then probably an hour or so of paperwork between her and I. So really like a full day so far yeah. here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So you'd never had any interaction with this person before August? No, actually a referral from a current client uh, who I have investments and insurance with. The individual, in this case, the client was looking for some advice and uh, she was part of a pension plan, um, was leaving that organization uh, to go back to school and she wanted uh, kind of a second opinion. It's interesting because I found that in a lot of cases, people are pretty familiar with their pension. They're active on kind of looking into it and and understanding what's there and, and reading the reports. And she was, in this case, the client was. And the problem was, though, they get this statement of options or, or what happens in the end, and they aren't sure what to do. And that's really where we come in a lot of times. Did you find the statement of options was reasonably clear? Was that actually? Very clear. Uh, so um, in this case, the, there was uh, also, in order to get the full service, there was some payback because she'd taken some time off a of leave and went back to school. So she, in this case, had very low income, uh, which will come into play later on for this year, and really wanted to know whether she should be paying back that uh, outstanding amount uh, in order to get the full pension and or commuted value. So we, we had a good conversation about that. Yeah, I remember you and I went back and forth a little bit on some of the math to determine yeah. whether that buyback was valuable. What was the final outcome on doing the buyback? It, she did do the buyback in the end. Uh, there was about a fifteen thousand dollar difference in, in on the buyback, even even though she had to pay out some money. And in her case, there was a lot of uh, a lot of time spent on again her goals and what she's going to do long term. So right now, she's been going to school, getting her education degree, and she was going to spend another year, so until this uh, next spring, in school to finish her education degree to then be a teacher, go on their pension and, and work there for another 25 odd years. The clients, you know, late thirties and wanted to um, get this education degree, something she's always wanted to do and was going to finish that up this year and then uh, go on and be a teacher. So that was the goal. She also had some other pools of money. So that came into play as well. She had uh, Lyra from an, a previous job. Uh, she has a rental house that nets about $1,200 a month. She has a, had no TFSAs, a small RSP, which was only what was allowed above the uh, pension amount, but she'd accumulated some in RSPs and didn't have a TS, TFSA. So um, there was a long conversation about what she needed to do now and what she wanted to do in the future. And a lot of our time was spent on that. It sounds like she should have had a financial planning engagement, no matter what, like even absent this She's got a lot going on here, right? hundred percent. Yeah. And, and she is a single mother recently divorced, really had, a, yeah, had a lot going on and really needed to kind of sit down and figure out what she has. There was a lot of scratching on paper and writing down things, uh, information from her kind of showing her where all sources of income can come from in retirement and, and, uh, having different assets or pools of money to access in retirement. So she hadn't really thought about this in any way, shape or form. It had been just doing what the employer had available, whether it was a group RSP or a pension, doing the right thing by putting away some RSP money each year, bought a rental house at one time with her spouse and part of the settlement she ended up with. But yeah, she never really had any engagement as far as planning for retirement. Um, you know, what do I have? What do I need? What do I, you know, what do I want long-term? So. And you said she came via a referral. Correct. I'm curious here, uh, do you think the person who referred 
knew some of that or do you, like how do you think that referral shook out um i do, you know what i don't know i hope it was because i done some good work for that that person uh, I, I hope she just came out and said i have a guy if you don't have one that you could call and it maybe give you a second opinion on some of this stuff so it's the first time i'd ever met her interesting first conversation and then i had to have several follow-up just because of time you can't keep a client here that long typically but we did need to get into some lifestyle behavioral i needed to understand and, and you've said that for jason behavioral is a big one when it comes to pensions how you're going to take that money or use that money or are you going to be able to save that money if you commute it out and not touch it so there's the risk there too so we need to have a conversation she's obviously done some good things on her own and we determined uh, in the end that because she needed some money for to finish her education degree for tuition books child care and then pay back a small loan she really was looking to commute this coming in here but just wanted to understand that and and so i had to really walk through the value of a pension and having that fixed income in retirement and spend a lot of time on that versus the commuted value and some risks with that and then also the liquidity of it and, and kind of advantages and disadvantages of both so we spent quite a bit of time on that as well yeah, perfect. I just would mention one thing that's sort of off the table here. I assume solvency of the pension wasn't a big deal. It's a crown corporation that she was working with. Correct. Yeah, federal. So it, there was really no uh, issue with that. It's not like a it was a Sears pension or something where we, you right, know right. something could go sideways from a corporation. I hadn't dealt with this pension before. I deal with other ones, provincial government, you know, nursing education, that kind of thing before, and we have some corporate clients of our own that we manage pensions for that uh, have some DV. And so I've dealt with some pensions, but this was the first for, for this one. Their paperwork, as you mentioned, was quite clear. It gave us the option if you take the full, if you take the decreased or reduced service. It talked about paying back some health benefits that she also had uh, when she was off. And as well, if she took the pension with the bridge benefit or annuitized it, it, it really laid it out for us. It's funny though, it seems clear for us as advisors, but for a client, they get this stack of paper and it's really daunting to them. And, and so you really have to kind of walk through, here's what they're saying with option one, here's option two, you know, and, and here's the difference. And so that was really what we spent a lot of time. So when you're explaining those pension options, is it right. uh, verbal? Or are you uh, like a napkin diagram kind of guy? What do you do here? <laughs> I'm drawing on paper all the time with charts and making doodling and, and doing that as well. We've also, at, initially, she printed a, a statement off of the site before she came and see me the first time. Then she received, knowing that it was coming, her statement of options afterward. And so that on the second meeting, we actually went through it step by step and kind of looked at all the different options there. Really, you know, I think that anybody dealing with this stuff really needs to spend a lot of time, you know, understanding it yourself and then making sure the client you're walking through it for them because I, I a lot of them uh even though they're aware of how much pension benefit they have and how much is coming off their paycheck they really don't understand the options on the back end did you uh, model any of this in financial planning software is that part of this exercise you know normally yes um in this case no because she'd already really had set in her mind and i you know i even though i cautioned her on giving up that pension Although we're in a low interest rate environment, a commuted pension right now is actually not a bad thing. She really wanted to access some of that cash and pay some things and then also have an additional pool of money that she can access later on, some locked in, some not. So they were able to lock in some, then there was a taxable amount. They were actually willing to transfer that to her RSP. And so we just sent them a notice of assessment said it's probably not current, but here's the most updated one. So she went to actually on the site, printed the most recent notice of assessment. They transferred that to there and then put the rest in a TFSA. So she had some Lira money, some RSP money, and then uh, we put the rest in a TFSA for, for additional yeah, perfect. liquidity. Yeah. Yeah. So little tax hit on the amount going into the TFSA, but it doesn't sound too bad. You bad. Well, and actually that's a great point because she'd had low income. She was only $10,000 of income this year. This was the year to do it uh, for this all to happen because she had such low income and lots of write-offs with uh, childcare and with uh, education. So really this was a, an optimal time for this all to happen for her and uh, give her that cash for next year and the next semester, as well as pay off uh, a small loan that she had and still give her 
different pools of money to access in retirement, some locked in, some non-locked in uh, with the RSP and then some TFSAs as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's perfect. And I don't necessarily think that modeling in the financial planning software would have been necessary here. She's relatively young and it's yeah. I think it becomes challenging to, to draw a good model like that. It does, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it's interesting. I mean, part of it was that we had to explain this and walk through all this with her she just wanted to understand better if she was making a good decision. I think she was going to tick the right boxes anyway. Didn't understand that she could probably take some. And we had to contact uh, the organization and say to them, is it okay if we move this straight into an RSP without the withholding tax and all that? And they, they were totally okay with that. But again, she may not have asked for that and had a tax hit there that was maybe unnecessary and transactions with buying an RSP and getting a credit and all that. So it was, it actually worked out really well in that regard, but a lot of it was just walking through it with her and helping her understand it. So I spent a lot of time listening and a lot, and then a lot of time educating something that we pride ourselves on here is giving people kind of the right information so that they can make good decisions. And you've used the term second opinion a couple of times. You really just mean a second opinion compared to what she already had in her head. Yeah, good point. Yes. I mean, she had, uh, again, a small RSP at the bank and an old Lira that she had at the bank, but really wasn't getting any advice from them. So I think that's where the, from what I understand from the client, that's where the referral came from was in a conversation with a friend of hers who then said, Hey, uh, I have somebody you could go see who I've dealt with and maybe he can give you a second opinion. So, okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So now she's, she's going to school to become a teacher. Correct. And, you know, assuming she actually ends up in the uh, education system somewhere, there would be another DB pension again, 100%. that next DB pension how does she view that now? Do you think she looks at that as a retirement asset or or are you concerned here maybe that this is something that she does again at some point? Yeah, no, good question. No, um, I, I thought the same thing and I said to her, you know, that fixed income from a pension is something that it's a huge asset and when we're doing planning for people down the road. Um, and, and she agreed. She likes the idea of having a pension. This one timing wise and at her age with the debt and the school and everything else and the, and the low income was a great idea to commute for her. At the same time, she knows that if I can get a pension and put 25 years into it roughly and have some fixed income along with her CPP and OAS and then these other pools that we've now set up um, and an old layer that she had, she's going to have, and we did some rough numbers on math without software, but just kind of a rough number of, and she was quite comfortable with that not knowing what her new pension is going to be at all, but kind of what's there already. And and she liked that idea that having that fixed income with a question mark there of what that pension is going to be or could look like. And, and she was very happy with that. She, I think, is going to uh, leave that pension and take that monthly fixed income in retirement with the bridge benefit. And everything. Yeah, like leave the pension untouched. Leave the pension yeah. as a pension, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I agree with you that it's so hard to find that uh, good DB today that... right. Now, just to wrap that question, I guess, so so the ultimate decision here was to fund the buyback. Yes. And then to take the commuted value. Yeah, you bet. So she'd taken a leave originally to, to, to start her education and then went back to work for a bit. And then during that time, that leave, she owed that back plus some health. And the math, we did the math on it and it made sense to take the commuted value but pay back the leave without pay pay that back as well as the health. And then she was covered. It, it made about a 14, five difference to her net. And so that made a lot of sense to, to pay that back. Obviously. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting bit of math, right? I, w I wish there was a way to sort of show that in the. Uh, yeah. Podcast, but... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you take community value and then you pay it all back, that it, it is good. And again, I needed to walk through it myself. She left me the information. We did a bunch of math here and then brought her in, had that conversation and, and that's where we kind of pencil drew it out for her so that she could see that it made sense for her to pay that back. Now, you know, some people who uh, maybe like the fee only folks might be pushing here and saying, well, you know, of course, Tab, you're going to have this recommendation because it's the one you get paid on and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm curious about what you do. Yeah. recognizing that there's that potential bias there. What do you do to mitigate that? So, so the first thing was that this was literally a, a meeting and I, I, I asked her if she wanted to do it as 
pay me to give her some advice and we'll figure out an hourly rate that works for her initially. And she said, well, I don't know what I want to do yet. I really just want, so the first meeting we were just going to, it was all free. We were just going to chat. Partway through it, I, I mentioned to her that they're obviously money under management. I would get paid for if you do it with me, but you can go to your bank where you already deal. And really with this paperwork, they're just going to transfer it into an RSP account that you already have and transfer it into a new Lira account, which you can set up. You can go to any advisor and do this. I'm really just giving her advice. And in the end, after we'd spent all this time together, I guess it was a comfort level, but she decided that she wanted to deal with us and our firm. When we do that, we explain, of course, uh, how we get paid and how fees work and, and uh, everything we do here is front end zero. So she was unhappy with us. She could move it. Uh, there was no fees on the back end, no fees up front. So she liked that. She'd never been shown that, which is scary. Uh, at the same time, I, lots of I hear that quite often, which is, is quite scary. But um, we, we show how we get paid and then we do everything front end zero. So it's quite transparent to everybody. And I guess that provided some comfort, made her want to do it. I Again, I suggested originally to keep the pension. And I think it was in the roughly, with the bridge benefit in that fourteen, fifteen hundred a month range, and then dropped back to about eight or nine hundred when when the bridge benefit ended. But I suggested probably that first, and then she said, "Well, I've been thinking about it. I want to fund my education. I want to fund the, I want to pay off this debt. I want to kind of go into this new job with, you know, a clean slate, no debt, and kind of make sure my childcare, schooling, everything's paid for when I when I go." So. She kind of already made up her mind. I, again, strongly suggested the pension, but uh, walked through it with her. And in her case, the commuted value made sense. I get that. I, and I would yeah. suggest that it wasn't necessarily in her best interest to have a big fee to do hourly work here with not a lot of income this year and going back to school right away. So Right. For my other client and probably for her, I would have spent, you know, probably a few hours uh, and done it for free anyway, you know, and helped her out anyway. In the end, we're going to get paid by money under management over a period of time. That's fine. But, it, you know, long term, I think she would have came back to us for other things possibly. But yeah, we would have probably provided that first meeting and maybe even a second and she could have went to her bank and we'd have, we probably wouldn't have sent her a bill for it. Yeah. Now, I know you and I went back and forth on this a little bit. You sent me some questions and I know you have a strong team of other financial planners in the office you work in. Yeah. I know you're active with advocates in yeah. your community. Do you use those resources as well? Yeah, not as much with the advocates on this one. Uh, sometimes we do, but not as much. I have some some colleagues who uh, we do different things, so I, I have no trouble accessing uh, locally even in our chapter. But my partners, um, there's actually nine advisors in our firm, licensed advisors. One of my senior partners has done more pension work than myself. He's been in the business for 30 some odd years. So I went to him and just asked for his second opinion before I presented to her. And he uh, agreed with me that, you know, based on the questions and what her goals were, that this made sense to commute it out. So that's perfect. Is there any last minute thoughts you have to share around that tab? Anything else you think people should be aware of or? I really think you, you need to spend, especially in these situations, spend time listening. Uh, you know, the first, it isn't going to happen in one meeting and it isn't going to uh, all come to fruition in, in an hour. These pension ones and, and understanding the person and understanding their goals and figuring out behavioral information, what other accounts and just the whole picture is going to take some time and a lot of listening. And a lot of questions and then you can do the work then you're gonna have multiple meetings so anytime you're dealing with pension it isn't gonna be a 30 minute or one hour meeting and done right it's gonna take some time so people need to understand that how you get paid on it is up to you I mean, some people are gonna to have to figure that out whether they bill for time and refer them on or if it ends up working out like it did in this case I guess uh, that's how we'll get paid on this one but yeah I do have one more uh, follow-on question here. Is there anything based on this one, just because you said it's a pension that you hadn't worked with previously? Right. Is there anything that you might do differently or a policy or a, a procedure you might add to, you know, next time you have a client who brings you an unfamiliar pension? First of all, I think you're right. I think we need to have something in the beginning that says a set fee that we will charge based on experience now with this one. Up front, if you don't end up dealing with us, it will be X and, and kind of setting that out ahead of time. So it's something we need to do when we talk about our fees. As far as this pension, no, I think I've now shared the information about this with my partners. We have a, an advisor meeting every month. And so in those, we kind of 
based on experiences we've had in dealings with different companies and dealing with different clients, here's, you know, I can share this with you guys, how to deal with this one or how it worked out and uh, kind of the good and bad so we can all learn from it. So this one was brought up uh, with them so that if they ever run into it, they can obviously come to me, but know that you have the flexibility for say, moving it into an RRSP and that they'll take in the notice of assessment and, and transfer it. All the information on the uh, payback and the whole the whole plan. So it worked out really well uh, that way and, and my partners and uh, fellow advisors were able to kind of learn from my experience on it. So Yeah, that's really good. And I wasn't necessarily suggesting you need a fee schedule or whatever the no. case is. I, yeah. It just makes the conversation easier when you lay it out ahead of time. You know. Yeah, I mean, we weren't concerned. It was more just doing a favor for a client that I've dealt with in the past that referred me on and I wanted to make sure for their sake that I took good care of their friend who they'd sent me and gave them some advice. And if that was done in an hour, great. But in the end, it worked out that she became a client with us. As well. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Any last minute thoughts there, Tab? No, I think it's great. I think, you know, anytime we have the opportunity to do one of these, don't be afraid of it. As you mentioned, Jason, there are lots of people you can go to. And if you're a member of Abacus or, you know, other financial advisors or CFPs or planners that you can uh, call up and get some advice if you're not familiar with pensions, collect all the information, learn it, understand it, and then make sure your client understands so they can make good decisions. Yeah, perfect. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. uh, Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay, that was a lot of meat there around retirement planning, and I like the way that Tab works through that. I think you can hear that Tab and I share a lot of thinking on how pension benefits should be considered. And I do think that it's usually, not always, but usually the right decision to take the commuted value of a pension for a younger person. I just think you get so much uncertainty down the road that you're better off to have access to those funds versus that known retirement benefit. And honestly, one of the challenges is even with government-sponsored pensions, the further down the road that is, the less known the pension benefit really is. I'm not so blind that I don't think that the government could change some of the pension rules. And we've seen this. We've seen some examples of government stepping in and having to adjust how they pay defined benefits on pensions. So I think this is probably the right decision. Now, the question does come up here about a conflict of interest and how do you mitigate that conflict of interest? If you're a commission-based advisor, if your primary source of compensation is by accumulating assets, there is, whether we like it or not, a conflict of interest at work there. And Tab does talk about that a little bit here and by getting a second opinion, talking it over with me on the podcast or me in email, I think helps with that a little bit. It's possible that that gets mitigated by paying a fee-only planner to get involved. In a case like this, as we said in the interview, it's just that the dollar amounts are probably too small to make that decision worthwhile. What I would suggest here is as a planner, you should look at the number of times you've had this question come up. And if you've dealt with this question, let's say 50 times, and you have 50 commuted value transfers you've done, maybe it's time to reconsider how you're presenting this to clients. It could very well be that there's some bias inherent in how you're presenting this to clients. And I would suggest that maybe you run that by somebody else who does some pension work and ask them to look at that bias. I will mention that there are some folks out there who really live in that pension consultancy world. I know Leah Coive does a fair bit of pension consulting. She writes quite a bit in advisor.ca, and I saw her present last year on the topic at KLU. So there are people out there to help you navigate those pension waters. Again, at this dollar amount, I probably wouldn't be looking for outside help, but if you're dealing with a, a pension where the commuted value is a million or a million and a half dollars, I would be thinking about involving an actuary here or a pension consultant, something like that to mitigate this. I know Jason Pereira and I recently had a little discussion about this on Twitter. I really like Jason Pereira's Twitter feed, by the way. He does lots of good financial planning commentary on there and also plugs his uh, 
I don't even know how many podcasts he's running now, at least two, I guess. So I said I would talk about the math for the buyback here. And actually, this almost exact question recently showed up in one of our CFP class discussion forums. And what I told the student is in order to solve this, you have to know the buyback cost. You need to figure out the difference then between the pension with the buyback and the pension without the buyback. And really, the difference there is the annuity that you're buying. So that's the kind of question is, what's the price to buy that annuity? Now I want to use an assumed rate of return in retirement, and I need the client's mortality. And then I'm going to solve for the present value of the annuity using those assumptions. And when I'm doing this solution, if the pension is indexed, I'll use a real rate of return, a lower rate of return. I'll take that assumed rate of return, less inflation. If the pension is not indexed, I'll use a nominal rate. Then I'll use the full rate of return. And I'm going to solve for the, yeah, the present value under those assumptions. And then I would want to look at what the rate of return is to achieve, is needed, sorry, to achieve that same outcome, really using that same buyback amount. And I think you'll generally find that you need a return of about 3% if the pension is indexed and about 1% it's not. Now, the problem here and what's not going to show up obviously in this question is how many employer dollars are at work here. And that's something that I think in the case tab describes, there's a fair bit of employer money at work. And really by extension then, when the employee does that buyback, the sort of imputed increase to the pension is based not just on the employee's money, but the employer's money. So it's somewhat counterintuitive, but the buyback actually increased the commuted value by more than the employee's buyback amount, which I find interesting. What you also want to ask here when you're comparing this to the pension is, can I do the same in a risk-free return? Now, I said earlier that we might be concerned about some of the flexibility we need between now and retirement. I think when you're dealing with a 35-year-old client, you know, you're 30 or 35 years or whatever it is out from retirement, there's other uncertainties there beyond just rate of return. There's the question of, do you have some financial event? And of course, I'm recording this right now as we are about a month into the impacts of coronavirus in North America. So is that a concern? It would be nice to have some liquidity today and much easier to realize that liquidity if you're sitting on some funds in a lira versus having left them in your pension. So it's that type of thing. Yes, a, a risk-free return is valuable, but having a pool of dollars you can fall back on is also valuable. Now you could make a counter argument to that and say, right, but if I had that in the pension, then it doesn't matter what happens during, let's say, coronavirus, I know that I still have that little pension waiting for me at retirement. And again, that's the kind of thing Tab talked about a fair bit when he talked about the weighing of factors in this discussion. Just a couple of other things that we didn't talk about at all and not so relevant for this client. But if you have a client who is married or in a common law relationship, one of the things that I sometimes think about is if you're going to do an early retirement Income splitting is only available if you stay with the defined benefit pension prior to age 65. After age 65, then you can split LIF income. But prior to age 65, the pension income splitting is only available from a defined benefit pension. So you really have to weigh that out. If you've got a client who's maybe going to be retiring at 56 or 57 and taking that defined benefit pension, that ability to income split becomes quite valuable. And the pension credit goes sort of hand in hand with that, but the pension credit generally results in a lot less tax savings than the income splitting for the pension does. I also just wanted to give kudos to Tab here for tax planning this around a low income earning year. Tab said, you know, this was a good year to create some additional income, and I think this is good. It's sort of lucky that Tab had this client in this year. But if you have a legit financial planning engagement where you've been working with this person for years and years, and you can see something happening, it might be a year of mat leave, it might be a year when they're going to school, it might be a year when there's an unexpected bit of unemployment, that's a good time to think about what taxable amounts we can create now that are going to reduce the tax burden down the road. So lots of good stuff there. 
I really enjoyed that interview. And on that note, we'll go on to another interview that I quite enjoyed with Brad. We're here with Brad. Brad is a financial planner based on Vancouver Island, both insurance and investment license. That's right, Brad? You got it. And you said uh, you've been in the business since just before the last big market event. Do we have that right? Yeah, I started off on the IROC side in uh, 2008. Um, we're having similar, uh, similar type events happening here today. You know, and everybody always says it's nice to have that previous experience with a, with a market drop when you're working through another one. So I don't know if you're finding that, if it matters or not. I think it's actually the, the first time that I've felt the fear in the market since 2008, where, where people are actually physically feeling that, um, that type of fear and anxiety and uncertainty that they did in 2008. They're, you're feeling it today. And um, very interesting how that's, it's not exactly repeating itself, but it's certainly rhyming. So I find that uh, to be really interesting today. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I know that's not what we're here to chat about. You had emailed mm -hmm. me a, about a week ago, I think, about a client of yours who is, I guess, sort of early retirement, involuntary early retirement, and has some questions now as she's uh, transitioning. Do you want to just maybe lay out the scenario a little bit for us here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just working with, she's actually a prospect. And so she came to me, she is, she's been on CPP disability uh, for about four years. And it actually has to do with anxiety. It's not a, not a physical, not a physical um, ailment that's causing her to be on CPP disability, which I did also found interesting because you don't yeah. see that as often as a physical disability. So that was uh, one part of it. And then the other part of it is she's turning 65 this year. And so we were talking about what's going to happen with the transition from CPP disability over to CPP. So that was, that was one part of the conversation. And then so, and she also, she does want to retire. So this year, so she'll come off of CPP disability and CPP. She has uh, her from previous work, she has a superannuation pension and OAS as well, which we'll be uh, talking about whether to delay it or take it or, or whatnot. She's not, so she's not working, she's on disabilities, but part-time work has uh, come up in the conversation and she's uh, in shape and very active. And I think that's for the most part, um, she's invested in some fairly conservative portfolios. And I think that's for the most part um, her situation now. So yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of get your thoughts on on the CPP disability and that transition over to the CPP. Yeah, it's a tough one to manage and it sort of takes a decision off the table. In a scenario like this, it doesn't make sense to delay CPP past age 65. There's no benefit to it because the CPP disability is going to cut off cold at age 65. There's no way to collect it after age 65. And if you had started, and it's good that she didn't, but if she had started CPP retirement benefits prior to 65, then you also lose your CPP disability. You can't be collecting both concurrently. I think you probably were aware of that. Right. Okay, so I have to step in here mid-interview. I made a mistake. I have a giant mea culpa here. I've already talked to Brad about this. Brad had a question about what happens in the transition from Canada Pension Plan disability benefits to Canada Pension Plan retirement benefits. I gave him an answer in the context of the interview that was incorrect, so I'm just deleting a bunch of stuff here. You're not going to hear it. It's not like I never make a mistake. I just think it's confusing to leave the mistake in here, and I don't want to confuse anybody. So my apologies for the error. Anyways, I want to, and I have talked to Brad about this. Brad is fully aware. He said, yeah, that's cool. It happens. So I appreciate that, Brad. Thanks so much. The question that comes up here is what happens in the transition from Canada Pension Plan disability benefits to Canada Pension Plan retirement benefits? I, I do mention in the interview with Brad, there would be no reason ever in this case to take CPP retirement at any age other than 65. If you start your CPP retirement at 60, then your CPP disability will end. You can't collect both concurrently. 
And if you decide to wait until 70 to collect your CPP retirement benefit, then you would have five years between age 65 and 70 with no Canada Pension Plan benefit. You can't collect the disability benefit after age 65. I suppose if by some quirk you could work and earn a great income between 65 and 70, then you might be wise to work in that period. But given how CPP is normally paid, I would be pretty surprised at that outcome. Okay, so why does that not make sense to do it any time other than age 65? Well, mathematically, the CPP disability benefit has to be greater than the CPP retirement benefit for the same person. And I'll try and walk you through this with some numbers. Let's say that I have a client who is collecting $1,000 a month of disability benefit from Canada Pension Plan. I know that CPP has about a $475 flat dollar amount that anybody collecting CPP disability benefits collects, plus 75% of their projected age 65 retirement benefit. So I know for that person that their flat benefit is 475, which means the variable amount is 525. 475 plus 525 is 1,000. I know then that that 525 represents 75% of their CPP retirement benefit. So I can do $525 divided by 75%. That gives me exactly $700. I know that that person at age 65 will have their CPP benefit reduced from about $1,000 a month to about $700 per month. Now, that amount is indexed, but still, that is about a $300 drop, and that's pretty typical to see a drop of somewhere between two dollars and $400, depending on the level of income that person earned before and where they are at in retirement. But it's uh, you can do the math if you know that 475 flat and the other portion, just take that divided by 75%. Now, let's pop back to the interview and we'll hear more of Brad's questions or discussion that wasn't about the CPP disability benefit. I'm interested to know, too, your client qualified for CPP disability on the basis of anxiety. It must have been quite serious. Eh? That's unusual. Yeah, that's the first time I've actually come across it, and she, and she even mentioned it, too. It's, it's not common where um, there's a, a mental disability that CPP comes across because it has to be severe and prolonged to the point where it affects your career and your working life and such. So it's, uh, so it's the first time that I've come across it and, and uh, she didn't elaborate on it too much, too much, but it was enough to where the doctor signed off on it and um, she was able to collect CPP disability uh, for that. So, which is, which is great. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I always tell in class, I would always say, you know, you're, you're generally only going to get it for, serious back injury, mm-hmm. loss of limbs, or a terminal illness where you're in treatment for it, or a, a progressive condition like Parkinson's, it's far enough along, but yeah. What, are there stats on that, Jason? Like with what's the, is it, is it mental disabilities or physical disabilities? Like which one, is it 50, half and half, or is it 60-40, or... I've never seen those stats for CPP disability. I feel like they're out there somewhere. There are stats for the disability tax credit that exactly give you that breakdown, but that's a whole different set of criteria and much more generous than the CPP disability definitions. So For sure, for sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll see if I can track something down around that. If I can Mm -hmm. find something, I'll throw it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Now, you said there's also an OAS question for this client, and I'm curious about what's going on here. Oh yeah, it was just we were going to talk about OAS, and just she wasn't aware that she could actually delay OAS. You can't take it early, but you could possibly delay. So I could. So I mentioned that um, that is another possibility as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, that doesn't affect CPP disability or CPP doesn't affect any of the OAS. It's just based on residency and such. That's exactly right. Yeah, the two are uh, disconnected from one another. So you're really free to make that decision either way. Do you have an inclination? Do you lean a certain way on that decision? Um, I leave it to the client. Like if they need the money, then I just tell them they, sh- they should probably take it. Then I would suggest maybe it's better if you delay it because 
people are living longer and the chances of you winding up in a home or needing extra care or whatnot is a very real possibility of that and that way your oas will have a bigger bump up and you'll have a little bit more dollars there to take care of yourself if, if that actually happens so that's uh one part of it and so um yeah i really leave it to the client whether they um, whether they should take it right away or delay it also how much they can actually take which is 0.6 percent if they delay it um, so 0.6 percent times 12 7.2 percent basically guaranteed from the government i can't guarantee that for you so it's another way for them to look at it whereas if you don't need the money then you're going to get this pretty nice rate of return from the government and um, basically guaranteed and that's going to have a better income stream for you uh, down the road. And there's a third way that you can look at it is um, if you're taking your, out your OAS, you're not using your assets. It sounds like you've got a pretty well-developed sort of pitch around this. You had you know, mm. different ways to look at it. Do you find clients are receptive to that or do people kind of say, ah, whatever, Brad, I'm going to start at 65. I don't really care about longevity risk or that guaranteed return. I would rather preserve my RSP or RIF assets. What would you find the, the responses from clients? I find that they do tend to lean towards give me this money right away. They're also very happy when to find out that they can actually delay their OAS because a lot of them, they don't know that. They know a lot. They seem to know a lot about the CPP, but they don't seem to know a lot about OAS. So they're actually quite surprised and happy that I told them that I found their appreciative of that. And then I just lay out the options, but I do tend to find that they do lean towards taking the money right away. It's there, it's an extra extra monthly income, and they're um, usually happy with the it. It's a curious thing. They appreciate knowing, but they still will go with the decision that sort of disagrees with, sounds like how you package it a little bit. I guess if, you're, if you have that money there sitting in front of you, probably your inclination is to uh, just take it. I mean, it's there, it's yours. You'd rather have it than the government has it, so. There's a couple of arguments that they'll convince themselves to, uh, to take it. Do you have a feel for how people, I don't know, mentally allocate those dollars? Are they thinking, well, that's whatever 600 bucks a month that I can share with the kids and grandkids, or is it like an extra cruise? I, I'm talking about cruises today, but is it that type of thing? Or do you think that they just look at it as sort of boosting the, the bottom line? Mainly the latter, so boosting the boosting the bottom line. They may say that, oh well, I can give a little bit extra money to the to the trip fund or the grandkids or whatnot. But usually, it boosts their their own income. Yeah, there's not really a accounting or a thinking of the overall picture. It's just here's some money. We'll pop it in the bank account, and whatever happens to it happens to it. Interesting. Now, with this prospect you mentioned, you said she's also going to have her defined benefit pension, her superannuation. How much influence does that have in how you think about a, a case like this? Um, it would influence me just to see, well, one, uh, how much, so we're just in the early stages of, of getting to uh, what type of numbers that she has. I'm not too sure on the number that she'll, she'll be getting, but I do just I mentioned the, how much is, are your expenses that you think you're going to have? Um, how much is the CPP, the OAS, and the superannuation? How much are those going to cover? And then if the superannuation and the CPP cover off those expenses, how open would you be to perhaps delaying the OAS? And so that's, that's another area that I would make a suggestion on, let them know that the option is there. And then um, if I just look at the numbers and say, well, superannuation and CPP cover off your expenses plus a little bit more, then you could probably just delay your OAS for a larger payout. And I think that would be a, a very prudent thing to do. And then I would just lay out the, the option there. So but it's basically just cash inflows versus cash outflows. Like how much is she going to be spending? And she, she said she doesn't spend a lot of money. She basically saves up all her money for traveling. She has about a thousand bucks a month for rent and um, really doesn't spend a ton of dough. So um, the OAS thing may be uh, a, a reality for her. Maybe it's uh, an appealing option for her, just depending on how much the superannuation would be, uh, would be bringing in per month. 
So it sounds like maybe too ideal a circumstance. She doesn't spend a lot. She's going to have this pension. She has flexibility mm-hmm. to decide how she's going to manage her OAS. CPP is going to be you know, roughly the same for her. And it sounds like she has some other savings as well. Yeah. Yeah. Would you talk to her about increasing her rate of spending or get into estate planning issues or charitable giving? What do you, and I know maybe this is putting the cart before the horse a little bit. I know she's still a prospect at this point, but Mm -hmm. do you have any kind of inclination that way when you see somebody who just really has more than they need? Yeah. So what it, so it's all in the, that discovery process, that initial meeting where I talked to them about their relationships. So I'll talk about who's important to them and that's where they come in their parents uh, kids, grandkids, things like that, talking about their career. And, but at the end of it, it's like, what do you want this money to do? What do you want to do in retirement? And they'll maybe have two or three goals usually revolve around traveling or grandkids or whatnot. And just determine what through that process make suggestions on what uh, they could do perhaps with this money. So that could involve allocating a, a certain account to travel. It could involve, okay, you have an extra $200 here per month. That could involve a long-term care policy. That could be another, another thing that you could look at. And so just looking at the numbers versus the, the expenses versus the income. And if they just match off of each other, well, there's really not that much there further that you can do. They just kind of carry on with what they're doing now. But if there's $500, if there's $600, whatnot, um, which I do have, there are some some clients out there that don't spend a lot and, and have a lot of income still coming in from the pensions. Um, then I can make suggestions towards things like long-term care, uh, things like perhaps you want to buy um, some type of insurance policy for your kids or your grandkids or help them out in some way. So there are situations like that, but it comes down to the the, the numbers, what, um, how big are their inflows versus their outflows. I mean, it, great to have that degree of flexibility, right? When you run to clients who are in the opposite situation, clients who are squeezed, what does that conversation look like? Usually it revolves around the just showing them the numbers, what they actually are, are bringing in versus what they're, what they're spending. And I have had that um, conversation with uh, one client in particular uh, where they're spending just a lot more than, um, than they're actually bringing in. But through the use of credit and whatnot, it looks like there's or can feel like they're actually sustaining themselves and that's just where you have the conversation which usually starts with I want you to fill out this form and tell me where you're spending all this money because when people put that pen to paper it's usually a lot more black and white and and they don't realize that they're actually spending this much money and that tends to be a wake-up call for them and so that's part of it. And then when I input all the data into NaviPlan and uh, do the financial plan uh, for them, and they see that it's not 95% or 100% that they're on track, it's more like 80 or 85. That's where there's some options that come up in our software that I can make suggestions on. And that's, that's very helpful too. When they see that in black and white, they see these numbers. These are numbers that they gave me and um, I'm not pulling them out of thin air. It's you need to save this amount of money if you want to retire at 65. If you don't want to retire, if you can't retire at 65, then we, then you have to retire at 67 or 68 or cut your spending and whatnot. And those are um, pretty generally pretty good conversation because the clients may not have known this for years. They may not have this type of conversation with a planner and advisor um, where they need to cut something or they need to you know, work a little bit longer in order to meet their goals. Yeah, that's perfect. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, any last minute thoughts you wanted to share around your retirement planning discussions with clients, Brad? Um, no last minute thoughts. I just uh, just do encourage uh, people to find, get a plan. I mean, uh, most planners out there are, um, are usually have the software and usually have the capabilities to, to put together some type of plan for you. It may not be as comprehensive as some, some shops, but um, at least you have some type of plan and you have an idea that you're on track with your expenses or your spending. So I just encourage people to, uh, to make sure they're aware that these um, tools are out there and these professionals are out there to help them. And I just encourage people to have a plan, um, whether you're 20, 30, 
or uh, going into uh, heading into retirement. And uh, for the planners listening, certainly, I think you're emphasizing the value of just getting somebody to sit down and go through those numbers. I think that that's uh, it's a hugely valuable outcome that I think people sometimes don't want to do until they feel like their clients are closer to retirement. So I appreciate that, Brad. That's good. For sure. Perfect. Okay. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Lots of great stuff there. And I've got a couple of items that I'll follow up with here concerning CPP disability. Uh, I think everybody is aware that the definition of disability for Canada Pension Plan is based on a severe and prolonged disability. Severe meaning that you are likely never able to work again, or if you're going to be able to work again, it's quite far off into the future, and prolonged means recovery is unlikely. And part of the test here is an income test. If you're working and you can earn more than about $5,500 a year, and there's some variability here, you can possibly go to about double this, but if you're working and earning up to about $5,500 a year, you can still collect CPP disability, anything more than that, and you cannot collect any CPP disability benefits. I mentioned that we would look at the stats. I'll include the link here to the CPP disability stats, the things that cause people to claim. Just a couple of highlight items here. Despite the fact that I said I don't hear it that often, mental disorders does account for just under one-third of CPP disability claims. That's the biggest plurality of claims. And then diseases of the musculoskeletal system and connective tissue. So these would be back injuries, for example, or serious knee injury. And these account for just a little more than one-fifth of claims. The only other category that is really a big chunk of the statistics here is just over 10% of claims are related to diseases of the nervous system and sense organs. And I'm assuming that Parkinson's would be in that category. There's quite a few categories here, so there's some overlap. For example, tumors represent just under 7% of claims, but diseases of the respiratory system represent 1.65% of claims. I'm not sure if lung cancer is a tumor, and a neoplasm is actually the word they use here, but if lung cancer is a neoplasm or if it is a disease of the respiratory system, for example. Nevertheless, the statistics are pretty interesting. And interesting to see uh, also where the age breakdown happens here, that we have the vast majority of CPP disability claimants who are between the ages of 50 and 65. That's about 70% of claimants who fall into that age range. So lots of good stuff there. The number for today's episode is nine. The number for today's episode is nine. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. For those who are listening, we've actually reactivated season one for continuing education credits, really to give people maximum opportunity to go back and get CE credits while they are maybe under self-isolation, not able to get out. So there's about in total 23 credits, I think, available from the podcast now, including your one professional responsibility credit, which was the first episode of season two. I will get one more professional responsibility credit at a minimum here in 2020 so that folks can get that done. And I haven't yet recorded the content for the next episode, so I'm not sure who our guests will be. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, fire me a note, jason at businesscareercollege.com. I'm always looking for people who have interesting client scenarios that they're willing to walk through. We look for about a 20-minute conversation usually. And 
If you could be so good as to pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. We're getting a few ratings on there, but not that many reviews. So I'd appreciate if people could go over and leave us a review. And when you leave reviews, that, of course, helps us to get discovered. Thanks very much, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.